0: This is Aspire, Arch Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship.
1: My name is Anne Yulizio, Director of Special Projects for Arch Street Press. And I will be your host today. Today, our guest is Natalia Adler, divisional planning specialist for the Global Data, Research, and Policy Division at UNICEF headquarters in New York City. Natalia's passion and interests lie in finding ways to implement social innovations for children and in the intersection of various disciplines as inspiration to imp- improve public services. During her tenure as chief. Chief of Social Policy at UNICEF Nicaragua, she carved a niche for herself in a space that combines social entrepreneurship, sustainable development, and human-centered design. One of her major projects was introducing a human-centered design approach to aid two autonomous indigenous and Afro-descendant regions in Nicaragua to develop two regional policies for children. Natalia's work is driven by her focus on ethnographic research and developing and testing prototypes and a marked emphasis on empathy. She was also pioneering solutions for developing sustainable and ecologically sound tourism practices that protect and serve Nicaragua's children. This model incorporates profitable business strategies and methods for augmenting local economies and communities. Natalia has worked at UNICEF Mozambique, where where she explored the, the intersection of children's rights and public finance management. She secured the UNICEF Mozambique office's first partnership with the Ministry of Finance and the Parliamentarian's Budget Commission, and she also created a budget monitoring forum that was a crucial ally of the Parliament during crucial budget negotiations. Natalia has demonstrated a keen interest in social entrepreneurship from a very early age. At just 14, she opened her very own business, a school in the countryside of her native Brazil where she taught English to over 50 children and adults. She saved her earnings and put the money toward earning her bachelor's degree in French literature from the University of Pennsylvania right here in Philadelphia, where she graduated summa cum laude. She also holds a master's degree in human rights from Columbia University. Natalia, it's such a pleasure to have you with us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Great. So, I'd like for you to tell us about your experience starting your own business in Brazil at age 14. Where did the idea come from and what pushed you to make that move? Did you see it as a risk initially?
2: Well, um, before working in international development, I was actually the beneficiary of development assistance myself. You see, I come from a very humble background. I was living in a very small town in the countryside of Brazil. And in fact, I was living in the back of my grandparents' house after my parents got divorced. They built this really small house there. And the proximity the of living close to my grandparents allowed us to make ends meet more easily. So when I was 13, um, the Kellogg Foundation opened an, an office near my house. And there were many volunteers who came from England and they were there to, to teach hygiene practice to poor kids. So my mom, being a very smart woman, she saw this as an opportunity. So she went there to the Kellogg Foundation and talked to one to, to one of the volunteers. Um, a young doctor from England. Um, and she told him like, listen, you don't have to teach my daughter how to brush her teeth. She knows that already. But could you teach her English instead? Hmm. And he did. And and I learned it so fast that in one year, I was speaking so well that I got invited to teach English at a local English school. And I taught there for six months. But then I realized that I would actually make more money if I opened my own school, which yeah. I did. And, and then I began teaching English to a few kids. And, and in a little time, I began expanding classes. And, and I was quite successful. And as, as you mentioned, eventually that allowed me to pay for school. And I actually lived in England for an entire year before um, going to the United States uh, to the University of Pennsylvania. And I think this experience has really been very influential for me. Uh, in particular the way that I see international development. I think there is a place for charity. I think there's definitely a place for humanitarian intervention. There is a place for targeted social protection programs. But I think overall, uh, development assistance needs this kind of entrepreneurial approach, Uh, not only in terms of the kinds of assistance that we provide, but also in the focus of our relationship. So I, I really welcome that idea of, uh, pushing and open spaces for for opportunities for trial and error, fostering potential learning and growth.
1: Very interesting. And you mentioned that you know it sort of breeds a necessity for social entrepreneurship. And along with that, it's interesting because you know growing up in Brazil, um, which is a country that has actually become acclaimed for its increasing focus on ecotourism, uh, did this did your childhood spend in an environment? Um, such as this spark your interest in developing responsible, sustainable tourism elsewhere in Latin America? Was there a direct tie to that?
2: Um, not really, because when I was growing up in Brazil at the time, uh, the idea of any kind of concern for the environment was a luxury that only the rich could afford. Hmm. I think most people in Brazil, especially in the 80s, were trying to, to scrape by. And, and even the idea of responsible, sustainable tourism didn't really exist as part of our vocabulary. Um but one one thing that did exist and i think it was more influential um, for my for my work later on was inflation for example and i know a lot of people talk and write about inflation but i remember perfectly well what it meant from an early age to live with inflation. Mm -hmm. I think every kid in Brazil growing up in the 80s knew that if you got some money, even a small amount of money as an allowance or something or a present, you had to spend that the very same day. You knew that that money the next day would be worth nothing. Mm -hmm. So I always had that uh, with me when I worked in Mozambique on public finance management, which was something quite new at the time for UNICEF. I remembered the importance of living uh, with stable macroeconomic policies. And I think that also influenced a lot of my work, that instead of trying to push for government to spend more and more, even in, in sectors like education and health, sometimes you need to take a step back and ask yourself whether or not that's the most prudent thing to do. because. If you have erratic spending, that could bring uh, macroeconomic instability. And I know for a fact that that's not a good thing. So instead, I always try to look for efficiency gains, how governments can spend better the little money that they have and and also keep that macroeconomic stability. Very interesting. So
1: maybe not necessarily, like you said, giving money to... Institutions that may have a flawed system inherently, but really taking a bigger picture look at how things are running within that institution and redirecting funds or redirecting the program itself in a in a new and innovative way.
2: Correct. Correct.
1: Very interesting. Uh, and after studying at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, studying French literature, you pursued your master's at Columbia University in New York City. So. What are the most valuable lessons or skill sets you attained during that time of your life? Obviously, you know your early life had quite a profound effect on your your overall vision for yourself. So, what did those college and graduate student uh, graduation or I'm sorry, graduate school years um, how did they how did those years affect you?
2: Um, for me I'm a big fan of liberal arts education I think that no matter what you study in life um, I I think that it gives you a very good foundation to seeing things from uh, different perspectives so I'm very um, happy that I chose a degree in French literature which I focused a lot on post-colonial literature and I think that opened up my eyes to then eventually pursue a degree in human rights um, at Columbia Um, But of all my classes, um, especially during my my graduate years that were close to what I'm doing now, um, I think that the class that actually influenced me the most was an anthropology class um, Mm -hmm. that I took with... um, And it was a class on women and human rights. And I remember the professor, uh, Professor Laila Avulugod. actually, she opened the class with a letter and she was reading this letter. And we didn't know who the letter was from. And it just sounded like expats working in development organizations, what they would normally write about their work in Africa. However, when she announced that the letter was not from a development practitioner, the letter was written by missionaries in the turn of the century. So the entire course was about really cracking up these myths about do-gooders who have wonderful, good intentions. But in the end, they end up proselytizing their own biases and prejudices where they're really trying to push certain agendas and discourses in the process of doing good. So for me, that class was a big eye-opener of the dangers of these industries um, that that we work on. And I also really opened my eyes about the importance of ethnography Hmm. in development work, which is something that um, I later on uh, adopted a lot. And I think today, if I have the option of hiring someone uh, to work in development and then somebody with a degree in international relations or anthropology, I probably would choose the latter.
1: Interesting. Very interesting. So how did that that bridge from the graduate school experience, how did that bring you to UNICEF? Um, how, how did that get your first role in UNICEF?
2: Well, um, when I was at Columbia... Uh, a friend of mine was doing her internship at UNICEF and they were looking for somebody else. Mm. And I began doing my internship uh, at UNICEF in New York a couple weeks, uh, a couple days a week. And I did that for, I think, six months. Um, and I came back as a volunteer to do something that I did not do during my internship years, which was networking. If you want to work and develop, networking is a big part of it. And you have to be very determined and, and to, to get a job at UNICEF and you have to do a lot of networking. Um, I eventually got my first consultancy, um, which then led to many other consultancies uh, for a period of about three years until I landed my first staff position with UNICEF in Mozambique. It was a very difficult decision. Um, mostly because it involves involved in my entire family. Uh, my husband had to quit his job here in the United States, and my son had to, to say goodbye to all his friends. And I think this is something that few people understand before they start working in international development. It's really not just a job, it's a lifestyle mm-hmm. and affects not just you, but it affects your entire family.
1: Right. Wow. So, how many years were you involved with UNICEF Mozambique, Natalia?
2: Um, almost four years. Okay. Yeah.
1: And how did your particular interests and passions uh, sort of evolve during your time with your organization? And perhaps start, uh, did they start more specifically with um, where your work is geared now? Or did they, um, did you start, sort of start with a broader, um, broader interest in a couple of different things and then hone in on what you specifically wanted to focus on as years went on?
2: Well, I think it we all bring our own experiences and interests to our work and we also bring our own biases and prejudices with us so i think it's always always important to keep uh them in check uh, so for me a good barometer it's not to come up with you know solutions right away and and your your views of the world right away but to really try to let go of some preconceived ideas about solutions um and that's a very difficult thing to do because to do that, you really have to let go of your expertise and you start seeing things with fresh eyes. Um, hmm. So for me, like whenever I go to a to a different duty station, I really try to embrace that approach, even though, you know, obviously you're accumulating experiences and, 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 and lessons learned from different um, previous work. I think trying to really spend some time as... Not coming up with any kind of ideas is a very good first step hmm. and and really try to um, to to focus on context, try to absorb everything that you can first and really you know at least spend like an entire year with very little things that you are actually trying to solve, but just to absorb very interesting. I like that
1: that philosophy about sort of letting go of your expertise and recognizing that there's so much to learn and there's never really a point where we can know that all that we can know. I I heard a good quote recently that the more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. (laughs) So it's important, like you said, to, to remain open and, and realize that um, different solutions can come from the most unexpected places and passions even can even come from the most unexpected places and experiences. So what was the transition from, from Mozambique to Nicaragua? How did that happen?
2: Well, uh, again, that's another thing that I think very people are aware of um, when they think of a career with UNICEF and with UN in general, is that while you do have a choice of where you work and what kind of job you'll do, the reality is that your choice is quite limited by the real opportunities that you have. So every time that you apply for a job, either a promotion or a lateral move, in the same location or in a different location, it's a whole new application. So you're every time you move, every time you change jobs, you're competing with internal and external candidates for that job. So it's very competitive, and it obviously it never ends. You are constantly applying for jobs all the time, um, and it's quite draining in in many ways. But having said that, um, I was working with Mozambique, which is a very low-income country. And I thought at the time that it would be a good transition to go to Nicaragua, which at the time was a transitioning country, was transitioned from low to middle-income country. And I thought that would give me a whole new perspective to, to develop and work. Um, personally, I also thought that it was a good idea to being, uh, to be close to home. Uh, again, a lot of people think that living abroad is exciting, and it really is, but it also has a lot, lots of drawbacks. And I think it being far from family and friends is one of them. So I think Nicaragua for me was attractive in the sense that it could be um, a good fit for my family as well, in the sense that, um, and again, this is something that few people understand, you know, you have your trailing spouses with you, and sometimes it's very difficult for them to find jobs. And I think in Mozambique it was quite... Um, challenging for my husband who doesn't have any background in development. Mm. And he's the private sector and he couldn't find jobs there. So it was uh, very difficult. And I thought that in a middle income country, uh, perhaps he would have better chances, which he did. And um, so I think that is something to to bear in mind. Again, it's a lifestyle. It's not just a job. Absolutely. Yeah. And
1: For our listeners who may not be familiar, Natalia, can you tell us more about the northern and southern autonomous Caribbean regions of Nicaragua? Uh, This may be what aspects of the economy and the government and the culture hold the most influence on your work there.
2: Sure. Um, Nicaragua is the largest country in Central America, and it has two coasts, one on the Pacific side, where the capital Managua is, and the other coast faces the Caribbean Sea. And the Caribbean uh, coast is where the majority of indigenous and afro descended population live. They also happen to be um, one of the poorest in the countries, and they are divided into one in the north and one in the south, and they are autonomous regions, and they have their own government. Um, but for children growing up in those regions, they also tend to, to fare much lower in terms of almost all social indicators compared to kids in the Pacific coast and the region itself not only has um, lingering effects from the Civil War but also they, they, they have recurrent natural disasters so it's a very difficult area um, to live on the other hand children living in those two regions they experience a very rich and varied cultural heritage uh, they have several distinct ethnic, cultural, and linguistic groups living in those communities, from the indigenous mosquitoes to the Afro-descendant creoles. And those contextual factors really play a, a role in the way the kids grow up. It's very, very complex. So when we were working there, um, both region um, autonomous government wanted to work with UNICEF to develop regional policies that would take into account this diverse and rich social fabric and I must confess I was not very excited about it at first I have seen over and over again uh, policies that take a long time to make uh, that end up sitting in a shelf somewhere. Hmm. But they were very insistent and they wanted to do something and they, they were very open to try something different. And that's when we introduced the idea of, of um, a human-centered design approach to the policymaking process.
1: Very interesting. And within that work, the the regional policies for the children in both the northern and southern autonomous regions were um, were sort of like your chief focus. So what, what did these regional policies entail?
2: Well... As I said, uh, we try to adapt and uh, adapt to some of the techniques using a human-centered design approach. And human-centered design is a very creative process that normally is used by designers, architects. A lot of the private sector um, use these techniques to develop products and services. Um, and, and the whole idea that we thought, okay, we try to use these techniques Uh, They're based on systems thinking, ethnographic research, empathetic design, uh, to really try to make these policymakers, government employees, to think like designers and develop products and services within the policymaking context that people truly value, that people truly need. And that is, it's a very private sector thinking, you know, the private sector will never put a product out there that they don't know uh, that people want, and that people will pay money for it. In the public sector, this thinking is not present, it's just about putting some service out there, and people will use it, and they cannot complain. So we're really trying to change that mindset. And... The difficulty, however, is that at the time, this was done like three years ago, um, even though the human-centered design was beginning to gain traction in the public sector, it was mostly used for developing uh, services, not to guide an entire policy-making process. So we really had no point of reference. So we have to do a lot of trial and error. And... And we saw ourselves, um, and again, instead of like hiring consultants to do the job for the government, the whole entire job was about us facilitating spaces for the government themselves, uh, the government employees themselves, to actually empathize with what was going on with children and their parents and their families, and trying to come up with interventions that made sense, and so. the the whole transition from public employees to um, to think like designers or what we like to say to call like public entrepreneurs um, started with leading these coalitions of government people to 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 put themselves in the shoes of the population that they were trying to serve and to really understand what these people want and that started with interviews they the government people had to run focus uh, focus discussions they had to gather stories they had to document their observation they had to spend a lot of time with people it's something that you don't see our politicians doing at, at all but we re- we really created the space for this kind of immersive experiences and then they had to then synthesize that information um, looking for recurrent themes uh, insights and then they had to go back and do again a little bit more investigation to really try to understand why is why is this a problem what is go, what is really going on and we created opportunities for them to do shadowing which is you know we had government officials really trying to follow uh, let's say parents to see what what is it what is the life of these these parents. What are they going through? We put themselves. We put them in in situations where they have to try um, services. That's service trials. So we, we put these politicians, government employees, to to go to school, take like do the homework, not as observers, but actually as students, eat in the school cafeteria try to register the birth of a child, see how difficult that is. We had people like even sleeping in maternal houses in hospitals to see what is the experience that people face on a daily basis. And in the case of men, we actually, the men uh, from the government, we actually had them carrying a 30-pound backpack to simulate a day of pregnancy. Wow. You know, to see what that is like. And that's how you really begin to create empathy. It's not a story about looking at numbers about problems affecting children, but you really start to empathize with those people. And so the whole policy followed this approach in both areas. And and it, it took eight months of investigation, again, being done by the government themselves, not consultants. And at that moment, we, act, we also... Uh, open up the discussion, when it came the time to really, okay, now we understand the situation how do we come up with interventions that make sense, interventions that are not only um, technically and organizationally feasible, but also economically viable given the constraints of the region it's a very poor region, so we did something quite simple, we actually uh, reached out to LinkedIn, to various groups of students, engineers, architects, and we asked, and we did some kind, like some sort of crowd sourcing to brainstorm, uh, brainstorm possible solution. And we had tons of support and we partnered with many different um, universities people and everybody was coming up with idea and with the policy makers on the ground we've fine-tuned those um, those interventions to to, to actually uh, develop the policy but the good thing and I think the interesting thing about it in the end is that now that the policies are ready it doesn't mean that they have to be implemented as is. The whole implementation approach is very adaptive. You know, policymakers, uh, frontline service providers, government employees are free to try the, the, the suggested interventions. They are free to adapt them. They are free to fail and to try again. And if they don't work, they can come up with other different, different solutions themselves.
0: This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Director of Special Projects Anne Elizio and Natalia Agler, Divisional Planning Specialist for the Global Division of Data, Research, and Policy at UNICEF.
1: Uh, and so you also established in this work a collaborative relationship with the first luxury boutique hotel in Nicaragua called Mukul and that was sort of used as a springboard for your project developing responsible tourism for children. So, can you tell us about this partnership and what the model itself looks like?
2: Um, sure. Um, when I arrived in Nicaragua, um, I was faced with a, a very um, interesting situation. I was coming from Mozambique, which is called a it was a, known as a donor darling um, for for most donors, like mm-hmm. the. Lots of donors poured money into into Mozambique, and Nicaragua. On the other hand, most of the traditional donors were leaving the country to focus their work um, in Africa. So. And, and also because Nicaragua was not as poor as it used to be a few years back. It had just graduated from low-income country to middle-income country. And there was also a very, um, there was also a nascent but vibrant private sector uh, community. And I saw that as an opportunity for collaboration. So in the second month that I was there, I began, um, I had managed to secure meetings with the the three most powerful private sector companies in the country. It took many months, like probably like eight months of negotiations. But in the end, we were able to to secure uh, not only the first private sector alliance at the UNICEF Nicaragua, but also we we did so with the most important corporate partner in the country, which is the Palace Group, uh, who owns uh, who owns Mukul, the the hotel, and it was a brand new hotel at the time, and and for me. And, particular I thought that this partnership was much more than a funding opportunity it was an opportunity to rethink corporate social responsibility in a way that brings value to everyone involved and I think that that was one of the the driving forces for the initiative how can you do corporate social responsibility that doesn't feel like charity that really brings value in return for all of those involved and and again um I think it also thinking back of my experience in Latin America and growing up in Brazil, for me, one of the driving forces of uh, many of the development work that I do is about the the idea of sharing opportunities across the board, so that kids can actually grow to their full potential. So, from this initial thinking, that's when the socialpreneur initiative was born, and it, the socialpreneur initiative is a is a combination of social entrepreneurship and collaborative solutions but it was much more than fostering a few business uh social business here the whole idea was quite ambitious it was about trying to create a silicon valley in a rural community that was being affected by a growing tourism industry
1: very interesting and along with that, you also fostered the creation of Tola Connecta, which is a social community-based platform that aims to, to build that entrepreneurial ecosystem and strengthen the local economies. So how does this platform function and, and tie in what you were just discussing with the entrepreneurial sort of approach to problem solving?
2: Well, again, as I said, we didn't want to do another uh, training for entrepreneurs. I mean, that has been uh, done and, and there's uh, married to that, but we didn't want to just end that. We really wanted to create a system. So the Socialpreneur Initiative began with an in-depth understanding of the, the social fabric in this community, Tola, uh, which included first the identification of the main problems affecting children, but not just children. We also want to understand what were the, the obstacles for responsible tourism. Again, spreading the value across. We also looked then for opportunities uh, in terms of business opportunities that could be pursued by local entrepreneurs that would respond to those problems. So it wasn't about, oh, you are an entrepreneur or you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to open a business in X. No, we want to make sure that the business would satisfy a need or a problem. So we're really connecting the dots, if you will. Um, The other thing that the initiative had was that we also mobilized national and international um, coaches to support the entrepreneurs, including over 20 20, uh, different organizations worldwide. And, you know, just to give an example, we also uh, set up a socialpreneur fellowship where we got to partner with local university to get students to act as coaches to the local entrepreneurs. And again, this is something I personally know from experience that... What an entrepreneur needs is not really money, at least not right away. You know, in the beginning of an enterprise, what an entrepreneur really needs is support and mentoring and mentoring in particular. So you're really trying, again, not only to connect the dots between the problem, business opportunities, people, but then coaches all over the world. And also being a tourism area, I knew that a lot of people, all the tourists, let go there could potentially serve as coaches themselves. So, uh, in parallel, in doing this research, uh, this ethnographic research, we also found out doing uh, a very uh, rigorous analysis of networks that the municipality of Tola was a very close-knitted place where transactions were based on trust and they were all very well connected with one another and this is interesting because it's very similar to what you find in Silicon Valley where collaborations flourish because of trust. So we took advantage of this arrangement to foster the creation of Tola Connecta, which is a—it's it's really a community platform made up of community members and a lot of the private sector. Um, so last year, the directive of Tola Connecta launched a huge fair. There were over a thousand people there, and 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 the cool thing about it was that they were trying to launch a sort of circular economy. Um, where they were trying to secure commi- commitment from the local hotels and the emerging tourism sector uh, to increasingly buy products and services made in TOLA, which in turn would create the demand for local entrepreneurial activity, so creating that circle of, uh, of demand.
1: Very interesting. And can you tell us a little bit more about, more? I guess more speak more specifically about, Problems that children in Nicaragua were facing, and the ones that you specifically tried to address.
2: Sure, I mean one of the, in particular in this um, in Tola, but I think in 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 many ways I have seen this over and over again uh, in Latin America. The more that a country starts going from low-income countries to middle-income countries, the economies start flourishing a little bit. One of the things that for me is is quite. Um, it's quite demanding, um, is that kids want, like when you ask kids what they want to be when they grow up, when they're little, they they still say anything. They will be ballerina, they will be astronaut. It doesn't matter how poor these kids are. They will still have that kind of uh, dream and, and, you know, trying to, to do things different. But the more... As they grow up and they start realizing the limitations of their opportunities, that's when their their dreams, that question, what do you want to be when you grow up, is start to lose sense. And I think that in many ways, um, for me, is working in UNICEF and in Nicaragua in particular, that question, what do you want to be when you grow up. There's a lot of potential there. How do you? How can we foster and open those opportunities so the kids could, you know, grow to their full potential? And I think in many ways in Nicaragua, even though you can always find, you know, in the numbers, you know, maybe in education, the quality of education is not that good. Um, there's still work to be done in terms of uh, closing the child mortality. Um, Gap. There's still numbers like violence. I mean, there's there's across the board. But I think in many ways, instead of fo- focusing on trying to fix certain problems, to have that sort of forward looking, trying to open up opportunities so that kids can actually grab their future with their own hands to to, to grow. I think it's it's something that um, we could be doing more of.
1: That's great to hear. And I think that that thread of recognizing that children are born with with ambition and dreams to uh, like you said it doesn't matter where in the world they are born they're they're wanting the best lives for themselves from day one. Um, and it's sad to see obviously that a lot of times, based on the lottery of birth a lot of these kids will not have opportunities to pursue their dreams so it's not a lack of ambition it's just a lack of the infrastructure being able to support those dreams so this this work is very much I think contributing to helping those kids really make those dreams more of a reality and it also seems that your work and and involvement with UNICEF has very much allowed for your own interests and passions to steer your work for the organization at large. So how do you feel that your work sort of fits into UNICEF's mission overall?
2: Um, I think, again, as I said before, the, this we, we bring our own experiences with us and for every kind of work, but also we bring our biases and prejudices. So the first thing I, I think it's important for us to do in any kind of industry is to really try to keep those prejudices and bias in check. There is a saying by Marcel Proust um, Mm -hmm. where he was to say that the real voyage of discovery consists not of seeking new lands, but in seeing things with new eyes. And I think this fresh thinking, this idea of letting go of expertise is very important. Of course, for development work is also extremely difficult because the industry is made up of experts. So how do you tell an expert in, I don't know, child protection? Or in health, that they have to let go of that expertise. So it's it's quite difficult. Uh, but having said that, I think, um, and, and I and throughout the thread of this conversation, I've made it very clear that it's the looking at the potential of open opening up opportunities. That I think that uh, is is an important work that we need to do overall but I think it's my contribution to the to UNICEF missions. how how do you um, create the space how do you work with government counterparts to create the space for kids to to be able to use the potential because I think potential exists everywhere so how do you create the space and open up those opportunities um, so that they can pursue that instead of actually giving Preconceived uh, or pre-made solutions for them, and so it's it's a very organic process. But I think in the end, really contributes to this overall uh, mission of the organization, which is that kids should grow to their full potential. Hmm.
1: Very interesting, and I think as well, you had discussed this before. it is the drawing a connection between nonprofit? and for-profit enterprises as well as government agencies um, tying together the private and public sector is something that very much is overlooked in a lot of opportunities in those sectors themselves. Uh, For growth within that sector, they almost, I, I think too often ignore the, the possibilities for addressing problems, not, in, not only in their sector, but problems that affect other sectors as well by bridging those gaps. So I think your work, Natalia, specifically, as well as UNICEF's in general, very much draws on that strength of finding commonalities and issues that affect each sector and finding strengths of each sector to bring them together and, and come towards a solution. It's very inspiring work. And you also mentioned the role of empathy in your work specifically uh you mentioned you know strapping on the 30 pound weights to men's backs and having them feel what it's like to um to be pregnant at that time so aside from exercises like this and um you know daily i guess realizations that folks that you're working with might have what what role does empathy play overall i mean in, in in lieu of um in lieu of just going in and and helping people without actually having people realize what it may be like to be living the life of someone else?
2: Um, Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think that, again, for me, the difference is that a lot of times in development, I think our jobs are... Are known as we have to bring the solutions. That's what you paid for. If you're a development practitioner, you feel that your your responsibility is to come up with ways to solve the world's most um, difficult and complex problems. You know, you're here just to um, end poverty, uh, eradicate child malnutrition, and, you know, stop violence against women. I mean, these are some of the world's most difficult problems. But I think in the end. It's our job is not to solve those problems. Our job is to facilitate those with responsibility. And it's a very shared responsibility across the board to solve those problems, because it's not the responsibility of just one organization. It's responsibility of many different people. So you if the moment that you feel that you can let go of the responsibility that's That you have to solve the problem and you start spreading and you start creating and fostering collaborations towards solving those problems or at least trying to solve those problems. I mean, like we have to have a lot of humility of what our goal is. So I think it's it's about. Uh, more opening up space. And I think in my own um, work, I think first it starts with humility. You know, I'm not here to, to really save the world. It's it, because it's not, it should not be on the shoulders of just one organization. Sure. You know, so embracing the humility that you know very little, that you're just here trying to to foster some kind of collaborations with people who might know more than you, who might have better ideas or who can together create new ideas is something that is is quite uh, important. It's not always easy because, again, it starts with having to, um, again, let go of some kind of preconceived idea, let go of expertise. And I think it's quite difficult for for developed practitioners. But what I have found is that um, if you can create um, opportunities for people to put themselves in different kinds of situations, I think that um, that is very important because it's quite difficult, as you can imagine, to change people's Brains and Mm. the way they think, their mindset. So, what you can change is the context for when people make those decisions. So, allowing people to to you know invite you know even simple things, inviting people to to certain meetings or to certain situations where they can see things things from a different angle, or they can try to. you know, to start asking questions as opposed to, you know, offering solutions, uh, and you start really like acting like a child, like asking why, why many times. For example, is quite powerful. Um, for me, I always try to do that because the moment that you start inducing changes as well in the in terms of thinking, I also need to put myself in the shoes of the other people because a lot of people resist change, and mm-hmm. I have to really understand why they're resisting and a lot of times and it's, it becomes a very personal thing people resist change because they feel that personally that change will affect them right. they may lose their jobs if they're not the expert on what they have been doing mm-hmm. um and one sentence that i always have with me uh, all the time as i try to engage in this process it's a very immersive experience process is one by Woodrow Wilson, who used to say that the best way to create enemies is to try to change something. Hmm. So in order right. for you to understand hmm. why people are resisting, you really have to also put yourself in the shoes of those people.
1: So along with that challenge, and you of, of um, striking the balance of providing solutions and also providing a sense of empathy for those around you, what other challenges do you face in your line of work and, and how have you addressed other challenges? ones that maybe just stick out in your mind right away?
2: Um, as I said, I mean, for me, I try to bring different perspectives to my work all the time. Mm-hmm. I borrow a lot from from the design world. I borrow a lot from, from Silicon Valley. For me, it's like there's so much to learn from, from that experiment. And it's not just private sector thinking, but really what are the... the 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 mindset that really pushes entrepreneurs, especially the lean startup approach, is something that I constantly use in my work, almost all the time. Um, I think that for for any industry, this kind of cross uh, fertilization of ideas is extremely important, because the moment we started speaking to the converted about solutions that have been you know, around for centuries. I mean, when you look at education, for example, we're still, it, education hasn't really changed much. You know, it's the same kind of um, process or even physical structure that you would have probably in the past 200 years. It's one teacher for, I don't know, 20 students and more if you're unlucky to be in a, in a a in a bad school. But The idea of learn and they have different subjects. The idea of learning hasn't really changed much. Now in Finland, for example, they have begun to um, to abandon subjects, teaching by subjects, and and that's quite new. But it has taken what two hundred years for Mm -hmm. for them to think that. And and I think that the moment that you and I, the problem I believe is that when we think about school, we are talking with the same people, and. And we don't really open up that discussion for people who might be in uh, in different uh, industries. I think now, again, human-centered design is gaining a lot of traction, so you will see more designers uh, involved in in the public sector and trying to, to come up with it ways, but it's when you think about uh, the development of state, I mean, it has to take centuries for this conversation uh, hmm. to begin. Um, so obviously um, when you open up a discussion people will resist because they will start um, you know attacking you by saying that you don't understand what we're doing so there's always like that that first reaction and um, and 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 it's very difficult to to in to try to to mitigate some of that resistance and in fact it it can be a full-time job Hmm. Um, and you have to also, um, you know. In fact, you have to show a lot of leadership. And and in fact, the word "leader," in, which came from the French, like old French, uh, used to be to refer to the to the soldiers who would be the first one in the line of attack, which also who also were the ones uh, first to be killed. Mm. So, if you're really trying to lead, you're really it, there's a lot of risk into that. So you really have to understand when it's time to push things and when it's time to to back away. Um, a professor from Harvard used to have a has a really good analogy. Sometimes you have to be in the heart of things that you have to be in the dance floor. But sometimes you have to remove yourself and put yourself in the balcony and observe. It's a very difficult um Thing to do, you have to have a lot of emotional intelligence to to be mm. able to navigate from the dense floor to the balcony. Mm. Um, but it, but it's something that you you if you want to induce t- change and you open up and if you want to open up the conversation and and invite other people to join in to solve these very complex problems, you have to be able to balance that well. I'm not saying I do know how to do it, um, but I think it starts with humility. Um, and and again, we all know um, Schopenhauer used to say something that it also is quite interesting, that every true passes through three stages. First is ridicule. Second, it's violently opposed. And then third is accepted as self-evident. So you have mm. to go through that. And maybe it's not even going to be in your lifetime, but I am, you also need, in addition to humility, you also need to have patience.
1: Absolutely. And that's such a, a strong... Uh, i I really like that comparison the um to the french the French meaning of of the word leader I think that's very profound and certainly applies to what you're doing um and that's true i th- I think Gandhi also has a quote that's very similar to the one um the one you just mentioned by Schopenhauer is that initially you always resist your change or your proposition will always face resistance and then the second time it'll be you know it'll keep happening and keep happening and then in the <laughs> end you're winning and you're the one who has allowed people to really see that that was the, the solution all along um so that's that's a great thing to carry through through your work through your work and to inspire others i really appreciate you sharing that and if you had other advice um other than the the great advice you just offered what would you tell young social entrepreneurs? Um, think about other 14 year olds who have maybe started their their own business just as you had back in Brazil and as they're pursuing their own unique journeys and they're discovering ways to blend their own passions for, blend their own passions with problems that they address or they recognize in the world and want to address what advice would you give those young folks?
2: Um I think we all need reminders of to the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I think it doesn't matter how old or young you are. I think that's the question that we need to ask ourselves all the time. Mm-hmm. And and you should never have a settled answer. I think you shouldn't be allowed to change your mind um, at different stages of your life. But I think in many ways, especially for young people, um, Entrepreneurs or people who want to to do something different, or they don't feel that they need to follow a regular path of going to school and then finding a job at a company and being there for the next thirty years. Um, I think I think it's just the idea of really believing that you have possibilities, and and I'm I think that this country is, and we are all. Very um, grateful when when we think about the, the the kind of mobility that still exists in places like the United States, mm. uh, even though you know um, a lot of uh, research has indicated that that kind of social mobility is is diminishing over time. Uh, I still think that um, compared to many other countries, the United States still offers that kind of idea that you can do anything. And and I think this is much more than a, a de facto opportunity that are available. I think this is more of a mindset and it's something that, again, you have that kind of idea that you can do anything when you're very little. It's just that reality kicks in and you start losing that perspective. And I think for entrepreneurs and especially, they still retain a little bit of that uh, believe that they can do anything that they can solve any problem and maybe they will fail but uh, and in fact most of them fail and they fail many times and that's good but just the fact that you still have that belief I think it's it's something that you need to cultivate before society or or the play the country where you're in or your family your parents I don't know they start reminding you that you don't have it you Mm -hmm. know and I think that's a big tyranny that it's not just imposed by countries societies I think it's it becomes very internalized so just keep that reminder that you can do it and nobody can remove those possibilities from you uh, uh, except for yourself that's
1: fantastic thank you so much for sharing that and the the Gandhi quote that I mentioned before is actually first they ignore you then they laugh at you then they fight you then you win (laughs) And I think that's, that's I so it. great, right? And it's very much in line with the Schopenhauer piece and what you just shared as well. It's this, you have to be strong in your own beliefs and, and know that deep down what you're doing is for the greater good and that you're really the only one that can convince yourself that you can't or can do something. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Thank you so much. Um well, we're coming to the end of our time today here, Natalia, but I wanted to share with our listeners the best way to reach you and to find out more about your work, in and that is through nataliaadler.com or through innovateforchildren.org. Is there, are there any other links that we should share with our listeners, Natalia?
2: I'm trying to be a little bit um, active on Twitter. Sure. Uh, Natalia okay. Adler 19, but... Uh... I'm trying, <laughs> but sure. those two websites um, are probably the best way. Great, yeah. Twitter
1: is quite an undertaking, so I can I can understand <laughs> that. Uh, we'll certainly share all three of those links, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us. And um, we appreciate the work that you're doing, and we look forward to following all of the all of the inspiring projects that you're working on. So listeners can click on these links above the podcast for further details. And Natalia, we will be in touch and. Um, will continue to support your work in any way possible so thank you again for sharing your story with us today
2: well thank you it's my pleasure Great.
0: thank you for joining us today our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org